Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Slate Money is brought to you by BowlandBranch.com, offering luxury betting at affordable prices. Order right now and they'll give you 20% off plus free shipping. Get sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more at BowlandBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com and use the promo code MONEY. And by ZipRecruiter. With a ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. And right now, you can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash money. And by Tracker, a coin-sized device that locates misplaced keys, wallets, bags, computers, anything in seconds. Make losing things a thing of the past. Get 30% off your entire order by going to the tracker.com. That's the T-R-A-C-K-R.com and using the promo code MONEY. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Villains edition of Slate Money. This is going to be full of villainy. Um, it's going to be a good one this week. Uh, it The business and finance news of this week has been dominated by all manner of fantastic stuff. So we're going to be talking about the evil billionaire Peter Thiel. We're going to be talking about the evil international monetary fund. Even the name sounds evil. And we are going to be talking about people who've actually gone to prison for being villainous and whether they um, are going to res- – what's the word? Uh, re-offend. Re- recidivist? Re-offend. Re- okay, re-offend. Whether they're going to re-offend go and go back to prison again and again. Yeah, we are going to be delving deep into the darker side of humanity with – Kathy O'Neill, the blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, everyone. Hello, Kathy. And with Jordan Weissman, the Moneybox columnist at Slate. Hello there. And I feel like it's. I'm just going to jump right in because I. This is this is my favorite topic. I'm going to talk about the evil billionaire Peter Thiel. I, yeah. I love how evil this guy is. So. The evil billionaire Peter Thiel outed himself this week, or it's unclear whether he outed himself or whether he was first outed against his will by Forbes and then just decided to go public. In any event, he is the secret evil force behind not only the Hulk Hogan versus Gorka 
lawsuit, but various other lawsuits as well, also against Gorka. He has been working literally for years. That back in 2006, Nick Denton, the proprietor of Gorka, started sniffing around for a story talking about how Peter is gay. And Peter told his PayPal co-founder, Max Levchin, who then told Nick Denton that if Nick were to publish such a story, then all manner of destruction would rain down upon Gorka and Nick and Gorka Media. And now, 10 years later, Peter Deal's cunning plan to destroy Gorka Media has become public and it is truly evil. We, we should probably just give a little background for our, our non-media addict listeners about what the Hulk Hogan lawsuit is, which is, if, if you haven't seen the news about this, basically Hulk Gawker published a sex tape featuring Hulk Hogan uh, having sex with the wife of his friend, Bubba the Love Sponge. Um, Six seconds of sex. It wasn't, it wasn't like the whole thing. It no, this, this little, It was a very edited down tape. Yeah, this wasn't a whole summer slam. This was it was like, more like was one it match X-rated? Was it actually X-rated? It's kind of grainy and, I mean... Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, I have to admit, I didn't actually watch it. I didn't so. either. Any, anyway, but they published this. Holt got mad, and he brought a uh, invasion of privacy suit, essentially, in Florida, um, which resulted through all sorts of luck, including a, a judge who was incredibly sympathetic and a jury that was incredibly sympathetic, a $140 million verdict against Gawker. Well, let's, let's also explain that this suit was thrown out of various different courts various times before eventually he found a sympathetic judge who would take it in state court. Um, and the cost of going to all of these different courts was enormous. And all the while, uh, you know, while he was jurisdiction shopping like this, Hulk Hogan was refusing substantial settlement offers from Gorka. None of this made a lot of sense because Hulk Hogan is not actually particularly well off. He was being offered seven-figure sums by Gorka, and he was saying, no, I'm going to continue to spend millions of dollars on lawsuits instead. People didn't understand that. And people also didn't understand why when he finally did get to Florida State Court, he dropped the one charge which would have allowed Gorka's insurance company to pay him which also didn't make sense, but now it all makes sense because... Because uh, somebody else was bankrolling him. Because the entire thing was being paid for by Peter Thiel, who had actually hired a whole team of lawyers to go out and scour Gorka.com, find anything litigation-worthy, approach these their lawyers and say, listen, we will pay for you to just fight and fight and fight just so long as you can get behind our aim, which is to destroy Gorka rather than just to get you the most money. So we've talked a little bit on on this podcast about, you know, other people bankrolling lawsuits. Litigation finance. Litigation finance. And we talked about it with respect to um, like the, I think the transvaginal mesh uh, (laughs) surgery, you know, unnecessary surgery that didn't really do any good, but made lawyers a lot of money. And we basically decided it's scummy. Um, And it seems to be even scummier now. I I think you guys decided it was scummy. I'm sort of on the fence. And this actually isn't even that. This is not even litigation finance in that sense. This This is something that's completely, I mean, Sort of been around forever, if you think. Well, I I have never seen this before. I I have seen a variation of. Well, yeah, no, I haven't seen this before. And to be clear, when I talk about this, litigation finance is where I find a lawsuit and I you know help to fund the lawsuit in order to get a share of the proceeds on the back end. And you know, it might be a little bit scummy. I'm not necessarily always opposed to it. Um, What. And, and billionaires suing media organizations is something we have seen a million times because you write something rude about the billionaire and then they get upset and then they sue you. What I, for one, have not seen before is billionaires getting upset at media organizations and then funding multiple lawsuits which are unrelated to the original tort against that media organization. So um, I'm blanking on his name right now, but the uh, the billionaire who went after Mother Jones a while back and they ran their long- That's career. right. He yeah. threatened to do this. So he's, he's at least put the idea out there. And my guess is someone has to have done this before. I'm always skeptical when someone says this is the first. I just, I imagine they probably stayed quiet about it. 
But, but I think this is certainly the first time that someone's come out and said, this is one of the most philanthropic things I've ever done. Yeah, yeah. so I think we have to separate. So, yeah, let's talk about that. Like, what is yeah. this guy, the th- most thin-skinned person in the world? Like, what's going on with him? He's He wasn't damaged by the original, like... He- At all. Like, it is not exactly damaging to accuse someone or to tell the world that someone is gay. In fact, it did him no harm at all. Yeah. So why is he so hurt? Why does he th- consider himself a victim? And, and, like, can we talk about libertarianism and victimhood, like, a little and, bit? And why is it that all of Silicon Valley seems to be team Peter Thiel here rather than team, like, people should be able to say true things on the internet. I think, I mean, I think you're right about the thin skinness. Um, I think that there is a sense that Gawker, I mean, for, on their part, I love Gawker. I, the other day I actually tweeted when they published, uh, they published that story about Donald Trump's hair. My tweet, was, which was actually figuring out what kind of a hair piece it probably was. My tweet was, thank God for Gawker. So I'm just on the yeah, table. Thank God that. for Gawker. I mean, yeah, look, but, we have to think about the system that whereby like public figures get to be ridiculed by places but, like Gawker and whether we're better off or not with that system in place. And I say by far we are. Yes, I, I personally agree with that. I think other people have a much dimmer view of the press. And you have to remember, we are basically, mem- I mean, you, Kathy, are essentially a member of the press. I mean, a lot of America thinks we're scum and billionaires in Silicon Valley uh, have an especially dim view when they start poking around their personal lives. So I, I understand the antipathy to some degree. Um, you know, I think that the, the, what's interesting to me here is that what Peter Thiel has done is completely ethical by legal standards. He has not done anything. Wait, wait, wait. He is, is totally legal. You know, legal and I, no, no, I legal don't, in terms I don't of legal think, ethics as I, well. No, I, I'm not sure about the legal ethics. There are two things which worry me in terms of legal ethics here. Okay. One of them is the fact that he did the whole thing in secret. That's and allowed. That, well, I didn't say it wasn't legal. I said it's ethically dubious. I, okay, wait, legal and ethics then, means and then, specific. And then the other question of the legal ethics, which is actually more important, is the question of the lawyer who brought the case. Dropping the insurable count against Gorker, that was not in his client's best interest. No, that's not true. So I've talked to legal ethicists about this specifically, people who study this for a living. And if Hogan said, let's do that, he is a, the lawyer is allowed to do that. And, no, no, furthermore, I, I, wait, and Hogan st- is allowed to. And if Hogan makes that decision specifically because he wants to keep his back or happy, that is permissible in court. Lawyers do serve a useful function, but they can be weaponized. And what Peter Thiel has done here is he has weaponized a bunch of lawyers to bankrupt a media organization, and that is worrying, and he has created a blueprint which allows any billionaire to go against any news organization using the same strategy. Thank you. That's exactly what worries me about this, and I don't give a shit what lawyers think is ethical. What I worry about is the fact that how how much, what percentage of Peter Thiel's fortune was actually used almost to do none. this. Like, he spent almost like nothing. $10 million to do this. I, I am not as worried about this blueprint getting used over and over again because I, I, you know, Brian Feldman, I think, at New York Magazine actually made this point. Um, but it sort of struck me as well, which is that the Hogan case is really, really specific. It's not even your typical, it's not your typical um, nuisance lawsuit or nuisance libel or defamation suit. It's an invasion of privacy suit over a... Um, over a sex tape. It's not something that comes up often. It's, you know, it's the kind of thing that even in states with uh, anti-slap laws, right? There's a, some states like California have something it's called uh, anti-strategic litigation against public participation. It's meant to keep people like billionaires from just suing you know, the press into oblivion. Um, this kind of suit probably wouldn't even be prevented by that. It's such a specific instance where you can bring what looks like maybe possibly a nuisance case and for it to blow up like this most of the time, I don't think it would work out like that. But that's not the point. The Hogan case is behind the point, is beside the point. The specifics of the Hogan case are especially beside the point. The, the strategy does not rely on the specifics of the Hogan case. The strategy is I'm going to go out there with a team of lawyers and fund as many lawsuits as it takes in as many jurisdictions as it takes until you just go bust defending lawsuits. And it's hard to find that many lawsuits that A, will be, even if they're, if I, who you're going to get a willing plaintiff who's willing to subject themselves to this without paying them. And by the way, you can't actually, the thing about Hogan here is he, theoretically, he's allowed to have his legal fees paid. But if Teal is actually paying Hogan himself to be the plaintiff, that complicates things and could undo the whole case. It could become very legal, depending. 
um, or very problematic in a civil case, not necessarily a crime. But, um, you know, I don't think it's that easily replicable. And if you are worried about it, I mean, I think you, you should talk about possible, uh, I, I think you should talk about possible remedies. There are, there is, there are there, you know, I haven't seen a lot of discussion about the legislation we could, people could support to deal with this, and it exists. There are things that we could do if we want to discuss. I'm happy to, but I haven't. I've, I've seen a lot of outrage and a lot, of, not a lot of constructive talk about what the goal should be to avoid suits like this. No, and I don't think the goal should be to avoid suits like this. As I say, like I believe in the courts. I believe they serve a useful purpose, and I believe that if this. Hulk Hogan case is allowed to wend its way through the various appeals that ultimately, um, you know, it will be overturned or the damages will be substantially reduced and justice will be done. I don't want to avoid cases like this. What I want to avoid is a strategy from Peter Thiel, which can go on for decades or more, where he's like, I'm going to sit and watch you publish over a million articles. And statistically speaking, there's going to be litigable stuff in there. And I'm just going to litigate absolutely every single one that I can. And that's going to go on forever until you are bust. Eventually, he will find one. So I think there actually is a there there is a potential policy way to deal with that, to, to head off the possibility of a guy like Peter Thiel doing that. And that's, there's something called a federal slap law, right? There, there are these state level anti-slap laws where you can basically when someone gives a brings a nuisance lawsuit against you because you said something mean about them in you know public place or in a newspaper you can bring a slap motion and saying this is just meant to keep me from speaking the whole case gets but if it's secret how do you know um wait and what's you you bring it against the plaintiff i'm saying in general this is the hogan case is an isolated incident most of the time it's not going to be a sex tape invasion of privacy it's more likely to be something like libel or defamation if he wants to which his other cases appear to be if he wants to continue a strategy like this, it's going to be more libel or defamation. So you, what you can do is you have these slap laws. What they do is they say, we're going to go through, see if this is a nuisance case. And if it is, the, the judge can rule ahead of time and make it a very short proceeding. Plus, on top of that, some states have something called an anti-slap, have a slap back law. So if someone brings one of these nuisance suits against you, you can bring a follow-up suit getting extra damages from them. So their nuisance suit actually becomes profitable for the target. So if you have those two things on a federal level, which people have talked about, then actually this this sort of strategy where you just bring an endless number of lawsuits to bleed them dry on legal fees will eventually fail. So if you want to talk about, uh, you know, maybe lobbying for that, that's interesting to me. Talking about the outrage of Peter Thiel and, you know, whether or not he's a bad guy, that's less interesting to me. Well, I, I think it's outrageous and he's a bad guy and um, I... I'm not sure. Sh- I, I think he's probably smart enough to only fund non-nuisance suits rather than nuisance suits. And so that doesn't, you know, that doesn't, uh, a federal anti-slap law wouldn't prevent well, if they're not it. Doesn't, it also doesn't convince me. Um, it, it, it doesn't convince me even with what you just said about slap suits and stuff that it's not at the end of the day an arms race about money with respect to the legal system. That's what I worry about the most. Even if you lose a slap suit or whatever, if it's a a drop in the bucket because you're so, so rich, it's still a bad, it's bad news for the media organizations, which are poor. At which point we are going to move on to the International Monetary Fund. Let's do it. Let's do it. But actually, no, let's first talk about Bolland Branch, which is a sheet bedding pillowcases, all of that kind of lovely stuff. Um, It's made in the most fair and ethical way. This is like the least villainous bedding in the world. You never really (laughs) worried about your bedding being villainous, but somehow your bedding is villainous, or it can be. It doesn't have to be. If you go to Bolland Branch, that's B-O-L-L and branch.com, that will get you pretty much the best bedding in the world. It's unbelievably soft. It's unbelievably comfortable. It's just going to help you sleep better and basically feel luxurious. And I'm going to tell you right this, right? I'm going to tell you this right here. Peter Thiel cannot sleep in better sheets than Bolland Branch. <laughs> like these are the best sheets you can possibly find. It's it great for thin skin. It doesn't matter if you have $2 billion, you still can't get better than Bolland Branch. Um, so you can... Feel what it's like to be a billionaire, which is not well. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I really want to know what it's like to be Peter <laughs> Thiel, but if you want to know what he sleeps like, you go to bollandbranch.com, B O L L and branch.com. And if you use the promo code money, then you get 20% off 
everything, the sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, whatever you want, free shipping, all returnable for free, but you won't. Just make sure you wash them a couple of times because the more you wash them, the softer they get, the more wonderful they get. Bolland Ranch, you will love it. You will know what it's like to be a, billi- a billionaire, at least when you're sleeping. Um, so, yeah, Jordan. Yes. We all, well, no. People, the, 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 the likes of Kathy o- O'Neill hate to, uh, love to um, hate on the IMF. Yes. So do they do they have good reason to hate? Wait on a the second, IMF? don't you? I should speak for myself you here. Should. Do you, do you do, hate on the IMF? Well, not this recent report. No, <laughs> okay. I hate on the old IMF. I was going to say, I feel like the IMF. Um, the IMF is changing. Yeah, has changed a lot, and it, we've seen that. Okay, we should probably back up and talk about. Yeah, what is the IMF? What is the IMF? It basically acts as the lender of last resort for struggling countries, right? Um, you know, back in the eighties and nineties, when a country was facing some financial hard straits, they're getting cut off from debt markets, whatever, the IMF would come in with some sort of loan to help smooth things over. However, that loan would come with conditions, typically, where they would say, you have to get your economy in order. But their idea of getting their economy in order was implementing a bunch of what we like to call neoliberal reforms. What's what's neoliberal? That, that word gets tossed around kind of lightly these days, especially by the left. But, um, you know, it typically meant a lot of deregulation in your economy. It meant an embrace of free trade and an embrace of what we call free capital, letting money kind of flow in and out of your borders. Um, it meant selling off public assets, you know, the, you know, utilities, things like that, and kind of privatizing the country. And if you did all that, you know, you were supposed to grow like gangbusters. And, and it also meant a relatively tight fiscal policy. Yes, yeah. Bringing down rate. your debt. High interest rates, low debt, those things. All, all the things that we typically associate now with conservative economics, let's put it pretty bluntly. Um, and it didn't always work out so hot. And some countries started experiencing things like financial crises because they were suddenly, you know, embracing things like free capital. Um, and in recent years, the IMF has sort of started backing off from all this. We've seen it a lot after the financial crisis, especially actually with Greece, yeah, um, where yeah. they've been the ones sort of telling Europe, please, for the love of God, you need to do debt reductions or none of this is yes. ever going to work. Um, so basically— And, and now—sorry, yeah. and, and then I'm going to let you guys go, but— um, now they've suddenly published this report, which a lot of people saw on Twitter and kind of went, huh, like WTF, which said, uh, it was titled liberalism oversold question mark. And then the subhead was basically, yes, <laughs> yes, we oversold lib- uh, o- neoliberalism. And it talks about two specific aspects of it, but this was just kind of this remark kind of, you know, finally doing a, a 180 uh, right, on the right. part of the IMF. And I've been, I've been tweeting about the IMF for like three weeks now because they've been in really heavy, heavy debates with Germany over what's going to happen with Greece. Because we've talked about this before, but Greece is very behind with its debt paybacks and it's very, very underwater. And in sort of the old IMF would be telling it, hey, telling Greece, hey, uh, you have to have more austerity, you have to be stricter, you have to like raise taxes more. The new IMF is saying this is unsustainable debt and we cannot make Greece agree to these terms. Well, I mean, it's interesting. Even the old IMF was not quite as averse to debt defaults as people think. Because remember that the IMF is a lender. The the IMF basically always gets repaid. Um, it, the IMF is first on the repayment list, and so the and, and senior so, maybe super senior. I don't know. Wait, no, that's that's a AAA thing. There's a there's a technical term which it's too early in the morning for me to remember what it, what it is. <laughs> the big dog. Um, <laughs> you guys realize we get up at two in the morning to record these things, so Saturday you have your podcast. It's a- true, absolutely. <laughs> um, so the IMF is a lender, and what the IMF wants just is what any other lender wants is to be repaid in full. And if it's lending to a country with which is already heavily indebted, it knows that its chances of getting repaid go down the more debt there is. So the IMF in principle is normally quite happy for countries to restructure their debts and reduce their debt burden because that makes it easier for them to pay back the IMF. At the same time, they're also, they, they've taken this um, stance against, Against austerity, which is, is interesting, because again, that was that was part of the old neoliberal agenda: was that you cut your deficits, you kept your debt in check as much as possible. Um, and with Greece, they've said you might want to go easy on this; it might not work out so well. And they generalized that in the report. Yeah, they basically, did. in the report, they said when you impose austerity, you have a you know 
a lag, but then once you have that um, a few months later or maybe a year later, you have a, a, a problem with growth. Yeah. Like your growth slows down because austerity hurts. So the part of the, – the other thing in the report that they focused on was this idea of free capital. And I think this – Super interesting. Yeah, this is the part that uh, – frankly, your, your typical Bernie Sanders fan doesn't think much about this when they throw around the, the word uh, neoliberalism. But I, I think – and Felix, tell me if you, you agree or disagree – in a lot of ways, this is the thing about that pro- about the neoliberal program that may have gone most awry. That I think at this point has most obviously had downs a big, big downside just in the the, the volatility of the financial world and, and kind of sovereign debts and sovereign finances and the way money can just kind of get yanked out of a country quickly. Um, at least, and it, it seems like the ninety seven financial crisis is maybe the, the biggest example of that in some ways. But um, the 90- oh, oh, sorry, the ninety seven Asian financial crisis yeah. is maybe the biggest example of that. Um, but I, I mean, do you think that that might be the, the, the part that, I mean, do you agree that that's part that's been the biggest failure or do you think it has been a failure? I mean, I'm curious to hear. So, so yeah, capital account liberalized, capital account liberalization was indeed the large part of the IMF's standard agenda for developing countries up until the late nineties. In the late nineties, it became increasingly obvious that there were huge dangers associated with Can we just with this. dumb this down, what, what you're talking about? So what we are talking about basically is allowing anyone anywhere in the world to invest as much money as they want in your country. Exactly. It's like opening up your country to foreign capital, which in principle sounds awesome, right? Like if you open up your your country to foreign capital, then all of this money pours in and it gets invested and, you know, Profit. Yeah. So the, and so, the flip side was no – also the flip side is letting them take the money out. Exactly. And so no one's going to just freely pour their money in unless they can freely take their money out. So this is what capital account liberalization means is that you should have very, very few, if any, barriers to money coming in and out of your country. And what we saw in 1997-98 during the Asian financial crisis was that there were – Big problems with this is in that people would pour money in and then suddenly it would stop. You would get used to this constant inflow of dollars and then suddenly the constant inflow of dollars would become a massive outflow of dollars and that huge reversal would be massively damaging to your economy and would cause a financial crisis, a banking crisis and all manner of other ills. And the first country to really realize this was Malaysia, which put in capital controls in 1998 to stop people taking their money out. And the IMF was said, basically, you can't do that. That goes against orthodoxy. But it worked really quite well for Malaysia. And then you had the Latin American financial crisis of 2001 to 2002, Argentina, Brazil. And you had the Inter-American Development Bank really start coming out with a pretty compelling set of papers about what they called sudden stops and where you have a bunch of money going into a country and then it stops suddenly. It doesn't even need to be pulled out, but just the stopping of the inflows is enough to really cause chaos in a country. So after those two crises, I think the um, orthodoxy of capital account liberalization more or less went out the window. Now, we are now in 2006. We were a long way past, sorry, 2016, rather. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're like 14 years after the Argentine crisis and or the Brazilian crisis. And I think that the fact that people are surprised the IMF is skeptical about free capital accounts, it's like, really? I feel like it's been skeptical for the past 15 years. So one of the things I found interesting is that the IMF actually differentiated between two different kinds of money coming into a country. And they made it sound really very, very different. I'm not sure we can actually do this in real life. But they differentiated between sort of investment. And I think you should think of like Apple investing in China and like giving a lot of people jobs. And everyone points to that. Foreign direct investment, which is generally considered to be a good thing because what it does is it brings technology into and, countries. And jobs and skills, et cetera. It really builds the country's um, economic system versus, and then they differentiate, versus speculative sort of investment just for a portfolio. Oh, I want I want part of my portfolio to be in emerging uh, markets. And that's right. exactly the kind of bad money. And, and it's, it's actually not so hard to distinguish there because FDI is where you go in and you fund companies directly or you build factories or something like that. Um, Capital inflows are just 
fund managers buying stocks and bonds. So it seems like a country could impose capital controls on the latter. Yes, and that's normally what they do. There's normally, you know, look at, say, well, I mean, I'm trying to think of a good example. But, yeah, it's quite common for countries to make it a little bit hard to buy stocks and bonds compared to, well, if you want to throw money into our banking system, that's great. I mean, I think also, I, again, tell me what you think, but I feel like the example of China has to have been um, illustrative here too, right? Just they are not a country that's fully liberalized their capital account. They, or, or even the FDI. I mean, yeah. they, they've actually made it hard not only to invest in stocks and bonds, but also to invest in companies uh, because they don't need foreign money. They they are printing money. They they have a surplus of capital which they're spending on treasury bonds because they don't know what to do with it. Um, they you know any sector which needs investment, there's more than enough money sloshing around China to do that domestically. So they don't really need foreign money at all. Okay, but let's think about like Puerto Rico or Greece. It do, they do need money. So is this IMF like report going to change anything for those countries or the the territory? Puerto Rico could probably do with some capital controls, but as a member of the United States of America, it's not allowed to impose right. capital controls. But at the very least, the point about austerity not actually helping an economy. Yeah, I mean, I think that's but that's kind of a, a, a established uh, rift now <laughs> between, you know, I mean, everyone's kind of aware of this debate. Yeah. That's and I feel like even the Austerians have more or less given up mostly on the idea that it's good for the economy to slash your um, government finances. They're just, you know, in most cases, um, like Greece, the reason why you impose austerity is because you have to, you have no choice because there are, you know, you can't raise taxes anymore um, and you can't borrow money. So you have to balance your budget somehow because there's no one willing to lend you that extra money. It's, in, it's, it's austerity by necessity rather than by choice. Um, the point in this IMF article is that the really big countries like the US and Germany and the UK every so often get this austerity bug. And that just doesn't make any sense because if that's by choice. You're like, why would you by choice do this kind of thing? Yeah, the markets aren't going to cut the United States out of uh, selling treasury bonds. They are not. Um, okay, we are going to move on to recidivism, Kathy. And this is this is I, I can't wait to hear Kathy talk about this because she has literally just written an entire book about this, and it's going <laughs> to. So we genuinely have the expert in the room, but I do first need to talk about ZipRecruiter, which is the way you hire people. So if you want people to write awesome articles about neoliberalism and debunking sacred cows of Milton Friedman, then what you do is you can go along to a million different job sites and say, I want to hire a sacred cow debunker. <laughs> and then the sacred cow debunkers are somewhere else and you never find them. And it's hard for you to, to for, hard for that market to clear. But guess what? We have a way of making this market clear. I do not clear. know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of going to all of these millions of job sites and trying to do it yourself, you go to ZipRecruiter.com. Oh, my God. Amazing. And you put up one – you just go to one little thing and you say, hey, I need a sacred cow debunker. And ZipRecruiter will take care of everything. They have – Keyword search. Millions of people <laughs> who they can reach. Millions of resumes on file. They have hundreds of thousands of businesses using their services. They are the experts at finding exactly the people that you want to hire. And they, unlike you, can find that sacred cow debunker Easily, they can match you up. The market will clear. You will be happy because you have found your sacred cow debunker. The sacred cow debunker will be happy because you're offering them a massive pay rise. And all is well in the world. So ZipRecruiter.com is like it's making markets much more efficient. It's making labor markets much more efficient. It's a great thing for the economy and it's a great thing for any business because hiring is a pain, as anyone who's ever tried it knows. And ZipRecruiter makes it much easier to screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Over 800,000 businesses have used it. That's a lot of businesses. So what's more, you can put that up for free. You can try it out for free. If you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash money. So 
What's not to love? You get to hire someone for free, basically, which is unheard of. ZipRecruiter.com slash money. Check it out. Hire the person you want to hire. Kathy. Yeah. Tell me about ProPublica, Julia Angwin, all of this kind of stuff. I'm a huge fan of Julia Angwin and Jeff Larson, who wrote this report earlier this week um, on recidivism risk. Um, what is that? That is a, an algorithm. Um, and they specifically studied uh, one of the – there's like a whole family of algorithms, but they studied this one called Compass, which was um, being used in Florida, which rates someone who's being sentenced or paroled or or up for bail. Um, they rates them on uh, on a scale like 1 to 10. Um, 10 being the highest risk of recidivism, which means the highest risk of coming back to jail once they leave, uh, and one being the lowest risk, like they're probably not going to come back to jail once they leave. Now, 97% of people who go to jail come back, It's um, leave, I should say, <laughs> leave at some point. So it makes sense to sort of want to know like, how likely is this person to come back or not. Um, and there's a lot of issues with this this algorithm, the the scoring model. I'll call it the scoring model. Would you call this a weapon of math destruction? I, I absolutely would. And yes, you're right. I did write an entire book on various algorithms that I think are destructive. Um, the reason I think um, this one in particular is destructive is because it, it sort of creates a negative and destructive feedback loop. Um, I'll say a little bit about it, but the, the thing that, that – that's really great about what they've done is they used basically um, public records um, by using FOIA requests and other and uh, uh, basically um, and they, they just looked at what actually happened to the um, the defendants that were scored and then went to jail and then left and did they come back or not and they found that um, you know some of them came back and they divided into like basically white people and black people they found that you know some some People came back. Some of those people who came back were actually scored high risk. Some of them were scored low risk. And in general, they found that the black blacks were twice as likely to be um, erroneously labeled high risk. So they were labeled high risk, but they didn't actually show up again in jail versus white people. And the white um, ones were much more likely, twice as likely to be erroneously labeled low risk. So they were labeled low risk. They weren't supposed to show back up in jail, but they did show back up in jail. So basically, you know, you'd never expect anything like this to be a perfectly accurate. It's statistical, right? You're not going to get exactly, you're not going to be able to, if any algorithm isn't going to be able to, to pick out exactly those people that are coming back to jail. But you do want the errors um, to be consistent across races. And you don't, you don't find that. They didn't find that. Yeah, I mean, this story was pretty dispiriting in the way most about criminal justice are, and this one has, you know, the the a lot of the judges in these cases seem to look at this algorithm and trust in it and let it influence their decisions about sentencing, even though the, the inventors of it initially said that that wasn't really their intention when they first designed the thing. It came out of sort of prison management and evolved into a different sort of beast. What I found myself wondering, and I, I don't, I, I mean, it seems like from this ProPublica report, this algorithm has problems. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to defend this one in particular. It seems like there's this uh, racial. This, it's creating, and maybe it's creating a racial gap in sentencing, or quite possibly. Um, what I wonder is, you know, how do you figure out whether the algorithm, for all its flaws, is worse than regular old human judgment and judicial judgment in in a situation like this? Is is it possible to? design an algorithm and figure out if it's, even if it's wrong some of the time, if that margin of error is still better than the margin of error that you get just from having a judge sit there and put his finger to the air about whether this guy is a threat to society in the future. Yeah. And so there's, that's a really good question. The The fact is our current justice system is already super racist. Yeah. And so th any attempt to make it less racist is worth thinking about. Um, the And the answer is, um, I don't know. And the answer is, this is one of the very, very first, and this is one of the most sad thing about this. These are being used in more than half the states for things like sentencing, paroling, and bail. And very few um, researchers have gone, at least on the record, talking about whether they're fair or not. So the, the very first point you have to make is we should be asking this question, right? If we care about fairness and justice, we absolutely should be tracking this. Yeah, about the testing part, what struck me about this system is it seems like something it should be able, you should be able to test it just using old public records. Or you should be able to iterate it. This is the thing which I don't understand is that no model is exact. No model is perfect. Everyone knows this. Models are always by definition approximations. And so 
any decent model maker is going to continually use real-world feedback mechanisms to iterate and to improve the model. And it seems that what ProPublica has done is what the model makers should have been doing in real time all along, no? Thank you for saying that. Yes. I mean, one of the things I'm agitating for in my book, because this is one of the examples, is like, why is the justice system itself not taking this on as something they need to audit on a continual basis and and build that feedback. I mean, the very first question I would ask, by the way, is why exactly when we have a higher risk of recidivism, do we sentence people for longer? Why does the the immediate reaction of a judge to say, okay, you're going to be in jail longer because you're a higher risk for coming back? Another possible reaction would be, okay, we're going to figure out why you're coming back and maybe help you find a job after you leave. So, I mean, there's so many questions to be asked here. Right now, it's in its infancy. Like, they just started using these models, and they, they're considered a magic bullet for the reasons you said, Jordan, which is that they're mathematical and pseudoscientific, and we're just not questioning them yet. And I should – I mean, it reminds me of one of the first social impact bonds, which was underwritten by Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. or the Goldman Sachs Foundation and the Bloomberg Philanthropies. And again, there's this kind of – blind faith in big data and the way that you can use this to put to to help create positive social outcomes and basically the idea was there was some magic bullet that you could do with inmates at Rikers Island and if you just poured this magic sauce on the inmates that would massively reduce the recidiv- the recidivism rate and the and so what happened was that Goldman Sachs and and the Bloomberg, Philan- the Bloomberg Philanthropies backstopped this social impact bond by Goldman Sachs, which basically raised the money to pay for the magic sauce, which they would pour all over the inmates. Mm-hmm. And then um, if it worked, then the bond would pay interest back to the people who bought it. And presumably the New York City justice system would then keep on buying that magic sauce because it worked really well. Um and if it didn't work, then the bondholders would lose a certain amount of money and the and Bloomberg Philanthropies would lose quite a lot of money. And it's a very interesting model. But what's fascinating was that this was an attempt to try and prove social impact bonds and, and show how effective they can be in, like, you know, bringing wonderful magic source into the criminal justice system. And what actually happened was that it didn't work. And the Bloomberg Philanthropies lost a lot of money and the magic source wasn't magic at all because – these big data things and these magic sources and these magic bullets are never quite as clean and wonderful as people think they are. Well, another thing that you sh- that bears mentioning is that um, you know the, these these models aren't that inaccurate. Um, but and I talk about this at length in my book. But the reasons they're not inaccurate um, are mostly because they, they pick up sort of uneven policing practices. So they ask you questions. One of the questions in the compass model and in most of the models are things like, do you live in a high crime neighborhood? Well, guess what? If you live in a high crime neighborhood, police are more likely to be sniffing at you all the time. And you're more likely to end up back in jail for whatever reason, possibly because you're smoking pot, you know, possibly a nuisance crime. So another issue that comes along is that we sometimes confuse accuracy with justice. Accuracy can be built in because of already uneven racist practices, and that doesn't mean we're getting justice. One thing, this is a little bit separate, but that struck me about this story was that ProPublica had to do this digging at all, that it is that this was a proprietary algorithm. Yes. And that it's a proprietary algorithm being used in the you know public criminal justice system. It's a black – until ProPublica – dug into it, it was essentially a black box. It is still uh, a black box. It is, yeah, I mean, they it's do, audited, yeah. but it's still a black box. And that is, I mean, the lack of transparency, and, and it, it, I, it, I, this is, I guess, the, the whole issue with privatizing justice in general, but the lack of transparency here when people's freedom is at stake is just a little bit appalling. And it, it, I think it just raises this question of, you know, of how I mean, should there be? Pro- I mean, this is one of those cases where do you really want to introduce profit motive into an aspect of the justice system? Um, and if you are, how do you balance that with the need for transparency? I don't know yeah. if you can balance it. Well, yeah. I, I have a simple question for Kathy. Like, is there any good reason why this algorithm shouldn't be public? There's it, no w- good reason. Would it's it be? Is there, is there some way that it could be gamed somehow if it was public? 
Well, probably. Um, you know, probably a fancy lawyer, for, you know, which rich, rich, rich defendants might get fancier lawyers and they would have um, more as- access to the questions. If they were, in other words, if it was public, it's not even clear that some of the poor, poor defendants would even know that, you know, because it's an information asymmetry. Um, but in a larger sense, there is absolutely no reason um, for it not to be public. If it were public, then people like Julia Engwin um, and others could audit it more directly. Um, it, and, and, you know, what, one of the reasons these things are never public is because of profit. And they also, they actually gain money. They gain sort of reputation by claiming they're doing some kind of sophisticated mathematics under the cover. And I, I mean, it's complete bullshit. Okay. We are going to, Finish up with the numbers round. Uh, I do need to first talk about Tracker, which is one of those natty gadgets which just makes your life better in kind of obvious but unanticipated ways. It's a little device. You can attach it to your keychain. You can put one in your wallet. You can put it in your bag. and You can attach it to your computer. It's a little baby little disc. It weighs nothing. And then you can find out where those things are when you have lost them. I mean, basically, I've attached one of these things to everything except for my glasses, because that would look a bit weird. But <laughs> once once this thing is attached to your keychain, say, you can just pick up your phone and ask your phone, like, where is my where are my keys? And it will essentially tell you there's this... What I want is for everyone who listens to Slate Money and everyone in the world to get a tracker device, because this is the really clever thing, is that... If you're, if my keys are near Jordan's phone and Jordan has the app installed on his phone, then my keys will talk to Jordan's phone and then Jordan's phone will talk to my phone and my phone will tell me where my keys are, even if they're not within sort of range of my phone. But it's also just a little thing where you can press a button and make your keys beep so that you can hear it's what really your keys smart. are. It's really smart. Anyway, the way you get this, if you want a 30% discount on your tracker, is to go to thetracker.com and enter the promo code money. So get a few of these things and you get a 30% off all of them, thetracker.com, promo code money. Don't lose your things, or rather, don't worry about losing your things, because even if you do lose your things, you can find them again. If you have your phone. Right. It's hard to use your phone <laughs> to find your phone. That's that. that have they your, haven't, have they haven't solved that problem. <laughs> actually, you know what? They have solved that problem. What's that? This so, is, no, no, no. This is actually, this is kind of what the most genius bit of all. Okay, get yeah. this. The the little disc has a button on it you can press. If you press the button on the disc, it makes your phone make a noise. Amazing. So if you've if you've lost your phone but you haven't lost your keys, you can use your keys to find your phone. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And even if the phone is on vibrate, So you could put one of those trackers, noise. like tape it to the wall, in fact. And yeah. Track your phone that way. Yeah. I'm so in. Okay. Uh, numbers round. Okay, I got one point four billion. Um, That's the number of yen that were stolen from cash machines in Japan, where 100 people worked together uh, for three hours um, on some kind of bank holiday using forged credit cards and all went to different ATMs in Japan and took out money, um, 1.4 billion yen, which is about $12.7 million. It was an amazing heist. Three hours. Three hours work. That's like $4 million an hour. (laughs) Even lawyers don't make that much money. (laughs) Um, I have a happy number. 13,317,900 13,317,980. Wow. That's, uh, I like this number because it's an exact number. And that is the number of Broadway tickets that were sold last year. Wow. That's a lot of tickets. It's an all-time high. And Hamilton? All Hamilton. And no, it's, <laughs> it's not. This is, None Hamilton, of them were Hamilton. Hamilton was only sh- playing for part of that year. Oh, interesting. And what's more, Hamilton is in a relatively modestly sized theater. So the big ones are the Book of Mormon and Wicked and those kind of things. And ticket prices are still over $100 each on average. The... Um, Number of tickets being sold is going up. Broadway is really healthy right now, and I, I'm happy about that. I am too. As the son of a costume designer, I'm, I'm happy about that. The, the only thing which looks a bit weird is, is plays. Virtually all of that, the overwhelming majority of that was musicals. And straight plays seem to be possibly on a decline, and the ones which do well at the box office are 
complete disasters like that horrible David Mamet thing with um, Al Pacino and the really good straight plays, I guess like it makes sense to me in a way because who wants to spend $200 to see a straight play when you can see one off-Broadway for 50 Anyway. Yeah. Um, my uh, my number is also pretty exact. It's 19,657. Um, that's the number of uh, student borrowers who are petitioning the Department of Education to cancel their loans hmm. currently on the uh, because they were apparently lied to by their school about employment prospects. Is that Corinthian? Or is uh, that it's just I haven't seen more I, general. I haven't movement. seen the specific Corinthian. Obviously, there were some uh, cancellations that went along with that. Um, but this probably isn't going to be the end of it. But it's just a. You know, this is the current numbers, the current crop. Uh, clearly, people are learning about this, and I, I expect you're going to see more you, of it, and the government's going to have to figure out if what I'm, to do. If I'm one of mm. those 19,000 people and I come up to Jordan and say, hey, Jordan, what's the chance this is going to work? What would you tell me? I don't know. I think, I don't, I mean, it depends. I, You know, are there, I, I think if your school is brought up on some sort of, in some sort of federal lawsuit, lot better than if it's not um if it's just a general kind of crappy uh for-profit school that with dodgy statistics a little less of a chance but i i am curious to see how this plays out okay so that is it for us this week i hope that we have entertained you with our tales of villainy thank you for listening to slate money do subscribe to the show. You find us in the iTunes store or anywhere that you find podcasts. Leave us a review. Write to us. The email address is slatemoney at slate.com. Many thanks to Audrey Quinn for producing and to the executive producers, Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers and all of the panoply of panoply podcasts, which can be found at iTunes.com slash panoply. So we'll talk to you next week on Slate money. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.